So why don't we open now with a word of prayer and ask God to open our hearts and our minds as we listen to what he has for us today. Lord God, I, I love being here. I love being with my family, contemplating your word, worshiping my Savior. Lord, as we dig into this passage and, and we look at this man, John the Baptist, Lord, help us to see who he's pointing to, to see Jesus. And Lord, as we contemplate who this Jesus is, Lord, I, I pray that you would soften our hearts, that he might become our Lord and Savior, and if he already is, that he would become the most important thing in our lives. Give us clarity, Lord. We ask this in your name. Amen. So if I were to say mountain man, okay, I'm sure that that phrase would conjure up different images in everybody's mind. Perhaps you think of this guy, right? The beloved character Mountain Man from the series Duck Dynasty. Always a fan favorite if you watch that show. He would talk really slow. Okay, I thought about doing my whole sermon that way. Then I realized my 45 minutes might take an hour and a half, and you might not appreciate that, right? When I hear the word mountain man, I think of Jeremiah Johnson, right? These guys from the 1972 classic Jeremiah Johnson, played by Robert Redford. It was a film I watched as a young kid with my dad. Love this movie, right? Mountain men, they're, they're, they're independent, self-sufficient. They're rugged. Generally, they're people who speak few words, but when they speak them, boy, are they important and do they carry weight. They're resourceful. Well, in today's passage, Matthew introduces us to a different mountain man. His name's John. We call him John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And we're going to see that God has set this man apart for a very special purpose, and that was to announce the arrival of the king and to prepare the people's hearts for his message. So we're going to study Matthew chapter 3 this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 to 12, and we're going to, out of this passage, we're going to pull out two points. We're going to first look at the man, who he is, and then we're going to look at his message. Okay, so join me in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1. It says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Okay, now let me remind you that nearly 30 years has transpired between the end of chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And so we don't have any record of all that was going on in that time. But if you remember, when we left off in chapter 2, we had Joseph and Mary and Jesus fleeing to the town of Nazareth where Jesus would grow up. He was just a toddler. And now here we are some 30 years later, and we're introduced to this new character. So Matthew's going to shift his focus away from Jesus and his family to this individual John the Baptist, who will play a very prominent role in the next several chapters of the book. Well, who is he? What do we know about him? And interestingly enough, Matthew doesn't give us much information about this particular individual. He just kind of kept it very simple to stick to his point, right? Remember, Matthew's purpose of the book was Christ is king, and so to stick to his point, he left out a lot of these details about John's birth, but it's kind of natural to want to know more. And so for that, we can look to the Gospel of Luke. Let me just give you a few things about this man. We know from Luke that he was born to Zechariah and Elizabeth 
in the hill country thought to be the town of En Karem. If you can see that there, I've circled it in red. So it's, it's a town just a little southwest of Jerusalem. Remember, his birth was miraculous because both of his parents were old, no longer able to bear children according to earthly means or earthly standards. Now, John was actually a priest. He was born of a priestly race through both parents. Zachariah served as a priest in the line of Abijah, and Elizabeth was through the line of Aaron. Like Jesus, his birth was foretold by an angel, and like Jesus, he was named directly by God. God said, you will name him John, and you will set him apart for a special purpose. And that purpose is what we will examine here in a minute. He grew up in the wilderness of Judea, highlighted now there in red, sometimes called the Judean Desert. It was a dry and barren area with very low rainfall. You can see a picture of it there. It would have been a tough place to live, a tough place to be raised, and it was in this terrain that this mountain man developed into who he was. He started his ministry in his early 30s. Again, he was going to be, he's about the same age as Jesus, so he started his ministry in the early 30s. And he did most of his preaching and baptizing in the Jordan River area, which you can see just north of the Dead Sea. And a picture of that there. His ministry was really short. He only ministered for a couple years before he was executed for speaking out against Herod. Herod had him beheaded. And so it was a short but very impactful ministry. In fact, in Matthew 11, 11, Jesus says that John was the greatest person to ever be born of woman. Now think about that for a minute. That means he was greater than Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, greater than Joseph or Moses, greater than Aaron, greater than David or Solomon. Right? That's quite a reputation. And what made him so great? Well, it wasn't his family. It certainly wasn't his social status, his wealth, or even his popularity. It was really his calling. It was the ministry that he had and the faithfulness in which he did it that made him so great. Now back to our text. Matthew does tell us something very strange about him. If you look with me in verse 4, Matthew says, uh, Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. Again, I, I thought about dressing the part today, but uh, I, I decided not to. I didn't want to get my camel hair wet. And then it says his food was locusts and wild honey. Now, if you're like me, you, you, you go reading through the book of Matthew, and you hit that verse, and you think, well, now that's weird. Of all the things Matthew could tell us about this guy, this is what he tells us? And at the very least, I believe it's because he, he wants us to know that John lives, or John lived this aesthetic lifestyle, right? It was unlike any of the religious leaders of the day. He wasn't concerned with status symbols. He wasn't concerned with people's opinion. He certainly wasn't interested in fancy clothes or, or nice meals. I mean, this guy ate locusts and wild honey. Now, the honey part I could take, right? I can, I can do the honey. Roasted locusts, yeah. I mean, I hope he roasted them. Maybe he just popped them in. There you can see what that would look like. And I actually had a little fun as I was doing this. It's amazing. I think we may be one of the only few countries that don't eat roasted locusts. So there on the left, you have your party platter. You know, that's, that's the two share size. 
So maybe you got New Year's Eve party. This would be an amazing thing to serve, right? <laughs> Roasted locusts. On the right, the food truck version. That's for your locusts on the go. You just buy a skewer, pop them in as you go. Mmm, tasty snack. Um, this guy, he wrote a whole page on how to eat them. Look at it. He cleaned his plate, so he gets dessert. And uh, I thought this was amusing. I just had to put this in here. This is what we're serving in kids' church today. Little. Uh, this is John the Baptist locusts and honey snacks. So, just kidding. We're not really doing that. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're looking for a winner, this is yours right here. The next one. Locusts and wild honey breakfast cereal. Crispy, crunchy goodness. Okay? Mmm. Rich in protein and fat. That's what it says. Anyways, all joking aside, not only, though, is he telling us that he lives this aesthetic lifestyle, and you, you, you might want to take that down off the screen. <laughs> we don't want to be thinking about that anymore. There was another reason why Matthew goes into this detail, and it's because Matthew is trying to connect his Jewish readers to the prophet Elijah, right? Their self-proclaimed greatest prophet who ever lived. So look with me at 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. We're kind of picking this up in the middle of the story, but it gets the point across. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? And they answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather around his waist. And he said, it's Elijah the Tishbite. And so John wore clothes that were similar to those of Elijah. And the Jewish readers, they would have known that, right? It's what would have come to their mind when they saw him or when they later read, or when they later read Matthew's account of him. Even Jesus helps to make this connection between John and Elijah a little more clear. If we were to look ahead in Matthew 11, starting in verse 11, he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah to come. You see, the Jews were expecting Elijah. They, they believed from the end of the Old Testament, from the prophecy of Malachi, that Elijah was going to come. In Malachi 4, 5 through 6, Malachi writes, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. As I was preparing for this, I learned that every Orthodox Jewish ceremony, even today, still leaves an empty or a cup and an empty spot for Elijah. And at every Jewish baby boy's circumcision, a chair, an empty chair is placed for Elijah. And the anticipation is if that Elijah would come and he would sit, or if he would drink from that cup, then the Messiah's arrival is imminent. What they didn't recognize, that it wouldn't be the literal, resurrected Elijah who was going to come, but it was John the Baptist. In fact, Jesus comments on this again later on in Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 9, Jesus says, and as they were coming down the mountain, this is when he was with Peter, James, and John after the event we call the Transfiguration. He says to them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. 
And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at the hands, at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. That he was the Elijah to come, the one who would usher in the Messiah. And that is why he came. That was the purpose of his ministry. Let's look at this in more detail. Join me in verse 3. He says, For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And so as we've seen several times before, Matthew takes us back to the Old Testament, and he's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. And the imagery that Isaiah is using is that of a herald, right? One who comes before a king, announcing the king's coming. You know, we sing the song, Hark the Herald Angel, right? It's that concept. This is one who would come before the king to make sure everything was ready for his arrival. And that included the roads. See, in that time, they didn't have smooth paved, straight roads like most people have today, the roads were much more like the ones we have in Indianapolis, right? (laughs) Full of potholes and treacherous, capable of breaking your wheel at any time. And so the herald and his coming and preparing the way would make sure that the holes were filled and the rocks were moved. And even if the the curve was too tight, they would straighten them out to make the travel more bearable for the king. And they would clean up the trash. And they would make sure that everybody they encountered would know that the king is coming and to make sure they were prepared to show their proper respect. And that's what John's mission was. Matthew is telling us that John's ministry is to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming king. That was his purpose. Again, once Jesus comments on this and helps fill in the pieces for us, in Matthew eleven eight. Jesus said, what did they go out to see, a man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see, a prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. All right, so this is just a little bit about the man, this, this mountain man. He was set apart by God from his birth. He was to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, one which they were familiar with. His purpose was to prepare the hearts of the people for their coming king. And so how did he do that? Well, let's take a look at his message. What was his message? Join me again in verse 1. Verse 2 is what we're really interested in, but I'm going to pick it back up in verse 1. It says, In those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So so that's it, right? That's pretty simple. That was his message. Short, sweet, and to the point. Just nine words. I would imagine there's probably a few people here today wishing that I would only say nine words. And we could just get in and out, right? Give me the nine words, let's go home. But those nine words were direct, and they're deep. 
They're penetrating and even perplexing. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It consists of an imperative, right? There's a command there, and that's to repent. And then he gives the reason. Why should we repent? Well, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or the kingdom of heaven is near. It's close. Before we break this down, I want to point out that this is the exact same message that Jesus is going to use when he begins preaching in chapter 4. In chapter 4, 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I find that to be fascinating. Let's, let's break this down, and I actually want to start with the second part. I'm gonna, let's talk a little bit about this concept of the kingdom of heaven. What is that? When he says, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, what is that? Well, I actually believe that it's a more complicated subject than it might appear. In fact, it could be the subject of a whole series of sermons. And so what I want to do is I don't want to spend too much time on it, but I want to distill it down into its essence so that we can comprehend the message that John is giving us. This exact phrase, kingdom of heaven, only appears in the Gospel of Matthew. You won't see that exact phrase anywhere else in Scripture. All of the other New Testament writers use the kingdom of God, or they may just use the word kingdom. But most theologians think they're talking about the same thing. And it kind of goes back to the idea that Matthew is writing to primarily a Jewish audience. The Jews wouldn't say the name God or Yahweh. And so many times what they did was they would substitute the word heaven in their speech. It's not unlike what we do today. You know, sometimes people will say, well, heaven was looking down on me. And what they really mean is God was looking down or, or the people in heaven. But they kind of used the location in place of the actual person. And so we believe that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of God. Now, Matthew puts a major emphasis on this. This phrase, kingdom of heaven, appears 32 times in his book. And we've already seen several of those in some of the verses that we've quoted. But that's not a surprise, right? Because if Matthew is writing to tell us that the king is coming, every king has a kingdom, and it's the kingdom of heaven. So the concept, though, of a kingdom of heaven runs throughout all of Scripture. In fact, uh, many of you would have studied that in your Sunday school hour this morning in studying the book of Daniel, the concept of a kingdom. And just like in every kingdom, there are three required pieces, right? You have to have a ruler, you have to have the ruled, and you have to have the realm, the area which they rule. In God's kingdom, he is obviously the ruler. So the question is, who are the ruled, and what is his realm? Well, this is where it gets to be a little more complicated, okay? Because in reality, there are, there are two distinct aspects to God's kingdom. One aspect is God's universal kingdom, and this is not what Matthew is talking about. But in God's universal kingdom, God rules over everything and over everyone forever. So everything that's ever created is the ruled, and that realm is the universe. So it goes from the biggest star down to subatomic particles. Everything is under his control and will be forever. That's a part of God's kingdom. That's his, what we would call his universal kingdom. But there's a second aspect to God's kingdom, 
And it's the one that John is talking about here. And this kingdom refers to his rule over his people on earth. Okay, his rule over his people on earth. This will eventually become the eternal kingdom, which we call heaven. But it's more than that. So when we read this passage, don't let your mind go straight to heaven, okay? Because we're talking about more than heaven. It includes, the kingdom of heaven includes heaven, which is the eternal kingdom, but that's kind of like the final phase. The initial phase was a promise made to David back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, what we call the Davidic covenant. So I'm going to take you there now. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, God is speaking through the prophet Nathan to David, and he says this, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be, a, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men and with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure before me, sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, this is what the Jews had been waiting for. They were waiting for the descendant of David to come, establish his kingdom, and set up his throne and to rule. This is why the book of Matthew was written. Your king is here. The kingdom has come. It's why the Magi, right, those kingmakers that we studied a couple weeks ago came, because they recognized Jesus as the king. That's why John is here. He's preparing the way for the king. In fact, if you look... Later on in the book of Matthew, again, Jesus gives us so much commentary on what we're studying today. When he sends out his disciples, he gives them these instructions in Matthew 10, verse 5. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Right? That same message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The long-awaited Messiah is here. But as we see later on in this passage, and if you were to examine several further chapters into Matthew, we see that the Jews rejected their king. They didn't want the kingdom that he was bringing. And so God postponed that literal rule of Christ on earth, that fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and he started a new phase of the kingdom of heaven, a, a temporary phase, kind of an interim phase, if you will, and this interim phase of the kingdom of heaven is mediated by the church. Okay, bear with me. I know this might be a little complicated, but we're going to bring this to a close in a minute. So look how later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus once again connects these concepts for us. In Matthew 16, he's dialoguing with his disciples. And in verse 13, he says, Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said to him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, 
for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on heaven will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus, then, is connecting this concept of the kingdom of heaven to the church. And he actually teaches extensively about this in Matthew 13. He uses seven parables to describe the kingdom of heaven. You might recall he says the kingdom of heaven is like, and he goes on to give them a parable. Each one of those parables teaches about the current time we live in, which is the church age. His disciples are like, well, why are you speaking to us in parables? Jesus says in Matthew 13, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it was not given. Okay? So now God will fulfill his promise to David, right? He is going to establish a literal kingdom on earth with the descendant of David sitting on the throne, Jesus, and that's what we call the millennial kingdom, all right, or the millennium. So it was a kingdom, the kingdom of heaven was promised to the Jews because they rejected it, it's temporarily being mediated by the church. It will be manifested literally when Christ rules on the earth on a throne on earth in the millennial kingdom, and then it will merge into the eternal kingdom, which is heaven. And so that is the kingdom of heaven. When John is delivering this message to this Jewish audience, they're thinking the Davidic covenant, right? The son of David is going to come and sit on the throne. So back to Matthew 3 and to John's message, and then the fundamental question we have to address, how do I get into this kingdom? What is the criteria for me to gain entrance into this kingdom? And then along with that, well, is there another kingdom? If I'm not a part of this kingdom, is there another kingdom that I belong to? How do you get in? Is it based on your nationality? Is it because you're a descendant of Abraham? Your family lineage, your genealogy? Is it your good works? No. According to John's message, the only way into this kingdom is to repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So then that brings the question, well, what does it mean to repent? Well, the word that John is using here means to actually change one's mind for the better. And it's it's going to become a theme throughout the rest of the Gospels, through the book of Acts, and the Revelations. And it always means a change from wrong to right, from sin to righteousness, never the other way around. And true godly repentance always involves three things. It always involves confession, right? It's admitting that what I have done is wrong, and you're willing to say it. Look, I've, I've done something wrong, I've sinned, I'm willing to state it. But it's more than that, okay? It's more than that. Because the Bible is full of people who recognize that they did something wrong and said it, but didn't repent. I mean, you can go back and you can study Pharaoh. It also involves contrition. In other words, I must be sorry for the wrong that I've done. There must be a deep realization in my heart that I've offended and grieved the holy God. But that's not even enough. Okay, because the Bible is full of people who admitted they sinned and felt bad about it, but didn't repent. Look at Judas. It must also involve conversion. 
I recognize that it is wrong, and I turn from it to what is right. I see it for what it is, what God calls sin. That's the word that we're going to see later on, sin. It's the word we see throughout Scripture. And it's a word that means to miss the mark. I've done wrong. I've wandered from the path of righteousness and honor. I violated divine law and thought or an act. And we know from the rest of Scripture that all have sinned. All have missed the mark. All have violated God's standard. That includes the Jewish people that Matthew or that John was preaching to that day. It includes all the people who later read Matthew's gospel all the way to us today, right? We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so what John is saying to them and what he's saying to us, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you do so by repentance, right? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Admit your sin, you have to be sorrowful for your sin, and you have to turn from your sin. In many respects, it's so simple. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is in the earth. It's so simple. It's so inclusive. Yet it's, it's so difficult and so divisive. Look what Jesus said later in the book, Matthew chapter 18, verses 2 through 4. And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself, like this child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Right? Requires humility. So you mean it's, it's not my nationality? It's, it's not my family history, my genealogy? It's not my good works. It's not because I've followed the seven pillars. It's not because I've reached a state of nirvana. No, it's because you repent. And as you can imagine, this message brought mixed reaction. Let's look at the, the two different reactions we see here. And back to our text, Matthew chapter 3, verse 5 and 6. It says, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. And they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Okay, so John's ministry caught the attention of the people. And Matthew doesn't tell us exactly how many people came. I would have loved to have known that, right? How many people came? Well, he doesn't tell us. But he does give us the idea of at least the geography from which they came. And so on the map here, I've drawn these red lines to kind of indicate the size of Judea. It's a big piece of land. And people came to see. And what's amazing is, is it would have been a full day's journey from Jerusalem. So this isn't something they did casually. It's not like, you know, hey, let's swing by and see all the commotion on our way to get something to eat, and we'll just kind of pop in, pop out, and be home. Right? They had to go intentionally. And, and I imagine some came out of curiosity. I just I got to hear about this guy wearing camel skin and a belt. Others may have come based on the testimony of a friend, right? Listen, you've got to hear his message. And so they responded. And we know they responded because they did two things. They confessed their sin. Right? That's, that's that first step in repentance. Yeah, what I have done is wrong. I'm admitting it. And then they were baptized. That baptism was an outward symbol of their repentance. Now, it's difficult for us Christians sitting in 2019 to understand how 
different this would have been for them. I, I hesitate to use the word, but, but radical, right? It, it would have been radical. And let me explain. This word baptism literally means to immerse. So John was literally dunking these people into the Jordan River, you know, like we do today. It was public. It was individual. Each person had to decide to repent and to be baptized. But baptism was not a common concept in the Old Testament. Right? Jews were not baptized. As a part of their ceremonial law, they would at times wash objects or occasionally wash people, maybe the priests, when they were ready to consecrate them to set them apart. But there was nothing in their law for them to be baptized. The only people who were baptized were Gentiles. Right? And now catch this. Gentiles who wanted to be followers of Yahweh. Outsiders who wanted to be insiders. I, I want to be in there. I'm out here. I don't have it. I want to be an insider. And the symbol for a Gentile to get in was to be baptized. Okay? And so these Jewish people are like, now wait a minute, you're, 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 telling, me, you're telling me i got to be baptized? I'm a Jew. Jews don't get baptized. John's saying, no, but you're an outsider. If you want to be an insider, you have to repent. And then you can show everybody you're repenting by being baptized. Okay? Outsiders who wanted to be insiders. So his message was short. It was simple. To gain entrance in the kingdom of heaven, you must repent. And then tell everybody about it by being baptized. As you can imagine, um, some could not overcome this. Some couldn't humble themselves. Look at verse 7. We're going to read uh, 7 and 8. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? It's kind of an interesting phrase, interesting verse. He strikes at him pretty hard. But Matthew gives us two groups of people here, and he mentions them by name for the first time. We see this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, this is likely the same groups of people that we saw back in Matthew chapter 2, right? When, when King Herod was confronted by the Magi and wanted to know the location of baby Jesus, Matthew tells us that he consulted with the, the priests and the scribes. Well, that's probably the same groups of people. Matthew now just gives us the names of these groups, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were two different groups, two different parties, if you will, that had developed probably sometime after the Jewish people had reclaimed their land following their captivity. You're not going to find them in the Old Testament, but sometimes, sometime after they got back to the land and in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament, these two groups developed. Now, they were opposite ends of the spectrum, right? The Pharisees, they came from the scribes. They were the ones who were intimately familiar with the law because they were scribes, right? They were writing it, and they separated themselves, and they were known for their rigid adherence to the ceremonial fine points of the law and then to traditions that they had developed. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they actually came from the high priestly line, but they were wealthy aristocrats, and they actually hated following traditions and the law, and they were opportunists. So the Pharisees were your legalists, and the Sadducees were your liberals, 
and both groups hated each other. But they had one thing in common. They both believed that their Jewish heritage made them right before God. And they both believed that their Jewish heritage would gain them entrance into the kingdom of heaven. They thought they were doing everything that they needed to do. Matthew doesn't tell us why they came. I imagine most of them came just out of curiosity. I got to see what's going on rather than to contemplate the message. But nonetheless, they came. And, And John strikes out at them. Now, there may have been some additional dialogue that Matthew didn't record, but it's kind of interesting. He doesn't invite them to, hey, just come sit down, hear me talk for a little bit, hear me out. Hey, let's have a conversation. He just goes right at them. And he calls them a brood of vipers, literally meaning the offspring of snakes. And he says to them, who warned you to flee? Kind of the idea is like if you have a pile of sticks and there might be snakes in it, when it catches fire, the snakes just scatter imagery here. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? But in his stinging rebuke, he's going to give them three things. Let's let's look at um, uh, verses 9 through 12. He's going to rebuke them, and we're going to break this down in just a second. He says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barns, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So what he had to say to these guys was really three things. First of all, Jesus, the mighty king, is coming. And John says, it's not about me. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. He's the mighty king. In fact, he's so much greater than I am that I can't even take off his shoes and carry them. That's Jesus. And with him comes judgment. Right? With it comes judgment. He says, my baptism is just a symbol of outsiders wanting to become insiders, but he's going to baptize the believers with the Holy Spirit. And the unbelievers, he's going to baptize them with fire. He's going to separate the wheat, the believers, from the chaff. And the chaff, he's going to burn with fire. He's going to cut down the barren tree and burn it. Because with Jesus comes judgment. And the second thing he says to them is, look, you're not going to escape this judgment because of your Jewishness, because you are a child of Abraham. That's not going to do it. It says, God can raise up descendants of Abraham from the stones. Don't count on your status as a high priest, your rigid adherence to the law, your genealogy, the fact that Abraham was your father. No, you must believe and repent to enter the kingdom of heaven and avoid judgment. And the last thing he says to them, we will know whether your repentance is true by the fruit that you bear. Jesus knows that. And if your tree's not bearing fruit, he cuts it down and he burns it with unquenchable fire. It's sad. These people were not willing to do it. They weren't willing to humble themselves and become like one of the little children. 
And so with that comes judgment. And so that's the man, this John the Baptist, set apart for a special purpose to announce the arrival of the king and to prepare the people's hearts for his coming. And that was his message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So as we close 2019, it's always a good time just to stop and to consider change, to reflect on the previous year and to think about the future year. And sure, there's a lot of things to consider, like, you know, you know what diet program you want to try, maybe how you're going to redo your budget to afford college. That's, that's where we're at in the Bradley household. The most important thing you can consider is what do you do with King Jesus? Right? What do you do with King Jesus? Perhaps you're here today and, and, and you identify with that, that first audience, right? Uh, you've repented of your sin. You've stated it publicly. You've been baptized. You've made Jesus Lord and Savior of your life. Then my challenge to you is what John the Baptist says later in the book of John, chapter 3, verse 30. He says, he, that's Jesus, must increase, and I must decrease. Maybe in 2020, you should think about, how do I make more of Jesus and less of myself? How do, how do I accomplish more of his will and less of my own? How do I make his name great and not worry about mine? Perhaps you're here today and, and you identify more with that second group. There's no fruit. There, there's nothing that would indicate signs of repentance. Look, you can't enter the kingdom or escape judgment because you're an American, right? Because we're a Christian nation. You can't do it because you grew up in the Midwest, which is supposedly wholesome and moral. You can't do it because you're a good person or that you've done more good than bad or you give a lot to charity. It doesn't happen that way. You must repent. Right? The Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's the only way. You're either a part of his kingdom or you're not. So it's time now to turn our attention to communion. And uh, we practice open communion here at Parkside, meaning that anyone who has called on the name of the Lord can partake. After I pray, there'll be a brief period of silence. This is a great time. This is a great time to talk to King Jesus. Um, if you need to talk to somebody or pray, there will be people standing down here. If you want to repent and call on the name of the Lord, there will be people down here who would love to talk to you about that and show you how you can do that. If you just want to say, look, I just want somebody to know I want to make more of King Jesus in 2020, come down, they'll pray with you, and they'll talk with you. After that time of silence, there'll be some music uh, that starts to play. Come forward, partake in communion, and then uh, we will finish our worship service. Let me pray. Lord God, we, we, cannot, we cannot thank you enough for sending King Jesus into this world. And to think of what he endured for our, our behalf. He deserved a throne in heaven. 
but decided to come down as a bondservant, a slave, and die a cruel death on the cross. Lord, stir our hearts today to make him our Lord and our Savior and to make as much of him as we can as a church and as individuals moving forward in 2020. We can only do this by your power. Strengthen us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.